This episode is proudly brought to you by Liquid IV. It's hydration in a pouch. Look, I'm loving the new sugar-free white peach flavor and how easy it is to hydrate with zero artificial sweeteners while on the go or in the studio. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, Liquid IV hydrates twice as fast as water alone. So get yourself some today. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Now sugar-free. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco or get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code INVISIBLE at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you use promo code INVISIBLE at liquidiv.com. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Do you think he was insane? I don't know how much more you can display insanity than live his life that he did. On a cold, cloudless night in Phoenix, Arizona, police came knocking at Brian Patrick Miller's front door and arrested him on January 13th, 2015. Thanks to advancements in DNA forensics, police finally had the man responsible for two cold case murders that plagued the city of Phoenix for the last two decades. As mentioned in part one, Miller's ex-wife immediately ran to police following his arrest, informing them of other similar crimes he had apparently committed, but that he was never charged for. But before we get into all of that, we still need to provide some background on who this man really is, as well as who he was pretending to be for over 20 years. After Brian Patrick Miller was released from juvenile detention back in 1990, he transitioned to a place called Adobe Mountain, a school for at-risk youth affiliated with the Paradise Valley Mennonite Church, which happens to be owned by the Arizona Department of Juvenile Corrections. Members of the church community tried to provide guidance for the now 18-year-old Brian Miller, who didn't have a good home life or family of his own to turn to. In the beginning, Brian participated in church activities and attended Mass regularly. But eventually, he realized the whole way of the Lord thing wasn't for him. So eventually, he found a job. The same year Angela Brasso was killed in 1992, Miller met a man at work named Randy McClade. Eventually, they got to talking, and Brian explained that he was looking for a roommate. Brian was shy and socially awkward, according to Randy, but he never showed any indication that he was potentially dangerous or violent, so Randy figured, what the hell? He welcomed the idea of reducing his rent, and by the summer of 1993, Brian moved into his co-worker and new friend Randy McClade's Central Phoenix apartment. It's important to note here that Brian moved in only a couple months before Melanie Burness was killed. Randy and Brian became more than just roommates. They were very close. The two would hang out regularly and watch movies together. Brian even spent the holidays with Randy's family. Another thing the two liked to do together was ride bicycles, specifically along the Arizona Canal. Sometimes the two men in their early 20s would ride as far as the Metro Center Mall, where, incidentally, Melanie Burness's body would ultimately be discovered come September. But other times, Miller would go out alone on these bike rides, which he preferred to do at night. According to his roommate Randy, Brian Patrick Miller would often carry a large hunting knife in a backpack when cycling around Phoenix. On one occasion, Randy witnessed Brian leaving the house with his hunting knife and even joked aloud by saying, quote, Don't stab anyone while you're out. Perhaps Randy was referring to the unsolved murder of Angela Brasso that happened the year before. But Brian, being the quiet, reserved person that he was, didn't react much and simply walked out of the apartment door expressionless for his evening bike ride. Randy never viewed Ryan's behavior as concerning in the slightest. But one day that summer in August of 1993, Randy saw something among Brian's possessions that he thought was odd. It was a turquoise bodysuit an obviously female garment. Randy thought it strange that Brian had a women's bathing suit, considering he didn't have a girlfriend at the time. 
Still, Randy wasn't the type to invade someone else's privacy, so he never mentioned it to Brian. On a separate occasion, though, Randy stumbled upon a handwritten note inside of their apartment. It was a list Brian made of movies to watch. All horror slasher films, specifically. Normally, this wouldn't be such a strange occurrence. After all, watching movies together was kind of their thing. But never once were they horror films. Brian never even mentioned wanting to watch something in the horror genre. Yet, there was this long list of films all of them involving blood and gore. Randy never said anything to Brian about the list either. However, sometime later, something may have clicked when a newsflash came across their television screen. 17-year-old Melanie Burness found dead by the Arizona Canal. It was September 22, 1993, the second woman to be murdered off the bike path in a matter of 10 months. Randy remembered that Brian was riding his bicycle the night before, That's when he asked him, Weren't you out riding over there last night? Brian calmly replied by stating that he was riding, but not where the murder occurred. He claims he had been cycling on the east side of Phoenix, more toward the other end of the city. But by this point, Randy had to have known that something was up. If he hadn't by now, he would soon, because one year later, in 1994, another newsflash came across that same TV someone could be able to identify this particular item of clothing as something that had been taken from them in the past in a burglary or a theft. Or maybe someone was in the area of the Burnus homicide when it occurred and saw someone that had this particular article of clothing in their possession. Randy also saw the photograph of Melanie Burnus's turquoise bodysuit featured in the Arizona Republic newspaper. The public was aware of the second murder as soon as it happened the year prior, but the images of the woman's bathing suit were not released until now. Randy McGlade couldn't believe his eyes. He was positive it was the very same bodysuit he had seen among his roommate Brian's things over a year before. Not long after that story ran, an anonymous tip came into a witness hotline. Authorities would later claim it was not Randy McGlade who made the call, but instead another third party. Perhaps authorities were just honoring their promise of anonymity, Or perhaps Randy told someone else and word had gotten around their friend group. Regardless, this tip is what ultimately put Brian Patrick Miller on the Phoenix police's radar for the first time officially regarding the homicides of both Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness. A couple of years later in 1995 or 96, Brian Patrick Miller would meet his future wife Amy in Phoenix. On their very first date, Brian took Amy to Castles and Coasters, an amusement park. They rode roller coasters together, laughed, and ate cotton candy approximately one mile away from where Angela Brasso's head was found floating in the canal on November 20th, 1992. Brian and Amy were married soon after they met and eventually had a daughter together, who they named Sarah. In 1998, the family of three then decided to move from Phoenix to Washington State. Brian was able to hide his dark secrets from his wife Amy for a while, but not forever. Within just two years of arriving in Washington, Brian Patrick Miller struck again. On a cold October morning in the year 2000, a 14-year-old girl named Victoria was walking along a remote trail in Everett, Washington, on her way to a friend's house before school. Brian Patrick Miller had driven his car down a remote side street and parked it behind a bush where the trail met the roadway. He then exited his vehicle and hid silently in the bushes until he saw a young girl walking by. Then, without warning, he attacked. He came up behind me and put his arm around my both of my shoulders and got me in the neck. He stabbed me twice in the back and then he strangled me until I passed out. Before Victoria lost consciousness, she managed to kick the knife away from him. She begged the man for her life, and the next thing she knew, she was waking up in the hospital. Victoria Michelson was stabbed a total of 17 times, and came within inches of meeting the same fate of Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness, one-eighth of an inch to be exact. The wound that nearly killed her was approximately one-eighth of an inch away from Victoria's aorta. Her injuries were so severe, doctors had to remove one of her feet and half of her intestines during surgery. 
But like Miller's first victim, Celeste Bentley, in 1989, she miraculously lived to tell her story. At the time, Miller had gotten away scot-free, and no one knew who had committed this brutal attack. From her hospital bed, Victoria would eventually provide a hazy description of her attacker to police. She told them that the man had long hair, ripped jeans, and was dirty, like he'd been sleeping on the ground, but that was really all she could remember. Meanwhile, Brian Patrick Miller had returned home shortly thereafter, his wife completely oblivious to what he was out doing that morning. One thing Amy Miller did think was strange was that Brian decided to shave all of his hair off that very day. It wouldn't be revealed until much later that Brian was actually Victoria's neighbor, that he and his wife Amy lived a mere 100 yards away from Victoria in the very same apartment complex. Brian Patrick Miller would carry on with life as if nothing ever happened yet again after this attack for years to come. All the while, his wife was still completely in the dark. That winter in February of 2000, he got a job working for a company called Canopy West in Everett, Washington. According to his LinkedIn page, Miller was an assembler where he would weld and fabricate metals for custom truck parts. However, this veil of normal civilian life would eventually be lifted just two years later, when Brian Patrick Miller's violent urges caught up with him once again. This time, he would pursue his fifth victim, at least that we know of. This episode is proudly brought to you by Wild Grain. Look, there's nothing quite like the smell of fresh-baked bread coming out of the oven. In fact, it's one of the only things that keeps me going through a long Wisconsin and Minnesota winters. But what if I told you you could get all of the deliciousness of fresh-baked bread and spend less time in the kitchen? Well, you can with Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first-ever bake-from-frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. And when I say bake from frozen, that's exactly what I mean. You don't have to wait for anything to thaw out. Your items literally bake from frozen in 25 minutes or less. All of them. Look, I love the variety and my absolute favorites are the blueberry biscuits. You guys have to try them. Wild Grain's main wild blueberry biscuits are buttery and moist with a soft flaky center and crispy crumbly edges. All you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com slash choir and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often. It's easy to reschedule, skip, or cancel. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com forward slash choir to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash choir. That's wildgrain.com slash choir, or you can use promo code choir at checkout. This episode is also proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. All right, like many of you, occasionally I get that feeling, like something's off and slipping further away. For me, those feelings stem from my own violent assault that happened back in 2006. Though I don't talk about it openly very often, close friends and family know how devastating that event was to my physical and mental health. And sometimes in life, we're faced with tough choices. And in that instance, that's exactly what happened to me. I was faced with a tough choice. I could either wallow in that darkness or seek help. And that's exactly what I did by pursuing therapy. And therapy helped me develop a toolkit of skills I still use to this very day to cope with that trauma of the physical assault and violence. If that's you, if you're struggling with those feelings or you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash choir today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash choir. On May 23rd, 2002, a 25-year-old woman named Melissa Ruiz Ramirez was walking along the side of the road when all of a sudden, Brian Patrick Miller's car pulled up beside her. He asked if she needed a lift, and Melissa gladly accepted. She recognized the man. One of Melissa's friends actually lived in the same apartment complex as Brian. She'd seen him around before, so in her eyes, Miller wasn't exactly a stranger. On that car ride, the two discussed how some of the trails in the area weren't safe to walk on, 
and that a woman had been stabbed along the path near Miller's apartment a couple of years before. Eventually, Brian pulled his car off into an abandoned parking lot. Before Melissa was able to exit the vehicle, Brian pulled out a 12-inch serrated blade and began stabbing her. Melissa would survive this attack, just like Celeste Bentley and Victoria Michelson before her, and 29-year-old Brian Patrick Miller was finally arrested. This was the very first time he'd been in handcuffs since the 1989 attack, despite harming countless more women for all those years in between. When his wife Amy visited him in jail and asked Brian why he did it, according to Amy, Brian said that he didn't know, but that the girl he'd given a ride to reminded him of his mother. Brian Patrick Miller wouldn't be locked up for long, though. He was ultimately acquitted for stabbing Melissa Ramirez after claiming self-defense. He told the judge Melissa tried to rob him and that he was essentially let go. Because he was ultimately exonerated, Brian Patrick Miller would avoid having to provide fingerprints or a DNA sample yet again and was still not entered into the police CODIS database. In 2005, immediately following his acquittal, Brian Patrick Miller and his family left Everett, Washington in the rearview mirror and moved back to Phoenix, Arizona. Without a place to go, Brian turned to the Mennonite Church, the very same folks who had helped him some 15 years before when he was first released from juvenile detention. Members of the church pooled their resources together and were able to find the Miller family an apartment. Brian soon after gained employment at a local McDonald's restaurant. His landlord, who was also a member of the church, felt bad for the Miller family, particularly their young daughter, Sarah, which is why she was willing to put up with the sporadic and, at times, missed rent payments altogether. If the landlord knew what was actually going on inside of that home behind closed doors, let's just say she wouldn't have been so compassionate toward Mr. Miller. Only a few months after landing back in Phoenix, Brian made a horrifying admission to his wife Amy. It's unclear exactly how it came up, but Brian ultimately confessed to his wife about a stabbing that he had committed, one that he had never been caught for. He had driven his car, parked it at the end, around the corner from the trail, walked down the trail and hidden in the bushes waiting for someone to walk by. When she did, he came out and had attacked her with a knife. He told his wife about Victoria, their 14-year-old neighbor from five years before in Everett, Washington, who was nearly stabbed to death in October of 2000. Brian told Amy that he was the one who did it, but that he decided not to kill her. She had said that um, she had actually stopped the attack when she had told, said to him, please, I don't want to die, or please don't kill me. But that wasn't all. According to Amy, Brian Patrick Miller told her about another girl, someone he had killed, who went missing months before Angela Brasso, but who was never found. Back on May 26, 1992, 13-year-old Brandy Lynn Myers went missing, going door-to-door raising money for school book drive. 13-year-old Brandy Myers was last seen at 6 p.m. on May 26, 1992. She was wearing prescription eyeglasses, a green t-shirt, denim skirt, and high-top sneakers. She was just 4 foot 9 inches tall and weighed 75 pounds. Her last known whereabouts were near her home in the area of 5th Street and East Hatcher Road in Phoenix. Brandy Myers only lived a few houses down from Brian Patrick Miller back then. In fact, she walked past his home every single day on her way to school. But after leaving a babysitter's house in the very same neighborhood to collect money for a fundraiser that day, she never returned. Thirteen years later, Brian was confessing to his wife that he was responsible for the little girl's disappearance and murder. He allegedly told his wife Amy that Brandy came to his door that day in 1992. Brian said that he thought she was selling Girl Scout cookies but had no intention of buying any. He explained to Amy that he convinced the girl to come inside, at which point he attacked and killed her. According to his wife, who would tell police years later, Brian said that after the murder, he put Brandy's body in the bathtub. He then said he rinsed the blood off of her with hot water dismembered the corpse, and then placed the remains in an industrial-sized trash bag, and then disposed of Brandy Meyer's body parts in a trash can outside of his Phoenix home. 
He also told Amy at the time that the neighbors complained of the smell. Miller simply told them it was spoiled meat that he had just thrown away and apologized for the horrific stench. If in fact what Brian Patrick Miller was telling his wife were true, that would mean 13-year-old Brandy Myers might be the very first person he killed, making Angela Brasso his second victim, Melanie Burness the third. Then again, there could be others. Brandy Myers went missing less than six months before Angela was found decapitated off the Arizona Canal bike path. However, Miller's involvement in her disappearance has yet to be substantiated, because at the time of releasing this episode 31 years later, Brandy Myers' body has never been found. Less than a year after Brian Patrick Miller told his wife Amy all of this, they divorced in 2006. In fear for her own life, she told no one about these admissions until his arrest over a decade later. After Amy and Brian divorced, Brian was granted full custody over their daughter, Sarah. According to his LinkedIn profile, he eventually left his job at McDonald's for a position at Walmart, where he would work until 2008. It was around this same time that Brian Patrick Miller decided to take on a new fictitious identity, a character he'd created called the Zombie Hunter. Brian began dressing in costume aligned with the steampunk genre. According to Google, this subset of science fiction is inspired by vintage fashion, an homage to the Victorian industrialism era built with a modern twist. Wind-up gears, gizmos, and brass fittings are all part of the steampunk aesthetic. Brian Patrick Miller, however, chose to bring more of a horror element to his persona. He began attending Comic-Con dressed in retro goggles and a metallic hard hat, while sporting a futuristic multi-barrel gun he more than likely fashioned himself, utilizing his welding skills. Brian became pretty well-known in the Phoenix and Tempe area. What really drew people's attention, though, was his personal vehicle, a Crown Victoria, an old retired police car. You see, Brian had put virtually all of his money from his minimum wage jobs into souping up this repurposed Crown Vic. In fact, he plastered die-cut stickers with bubble letters that read Zombie Hunter across the trunk and splattered the entire exterior of the vehicle with fake blood. Miller drove that car around the city, flashing his still-functioning police lights that had been swapped out with green and yellow bulbs to make it street legal. In addition, there was a life-size jigsaw doll from the horror film Saw that lived in the back seat. Miller even created a Facebook fan page for his character called The Arizona Zombie Hunter. Brian was described as calm, well-mannered, and someone who rarely drank alcohol. But according to those who actually knew him, he was extremely reserved outside of playing this zombie hunter character. His car and cosplay character are what would inevitably pave the way to a social life for a man who would otherwise have none. Ego building, um, wanting a way to say look at me without doing that with his personality. That's Miller's former friend, Eric Braverman. Just like his old roommate, Randy McGlade, Brian and his daughter spent Christmas with Eric's family one year when they had nowhere else to go. Eventually, Brian found an entire crew of steampunk enthusiasts just like himself. One of those individuals was a local Phoenix artist named Keen Azariah. The two met in 2009, and that same year, Brian began working as a security guard, the occupation and job experience he gained that would inevitably lead to his arrest roughly six years later. By 2011, Brian had leaned all the way into his role as the zombie hunter. And that year, he also joined a group called the Arizona Steampunk Society, which, according to Facebook, is just a social group where a bunch of people dress up for fun and cosplay and attend events. Harmless, right? Well, here's Miller's mission statement from his since-deleted profile on the Arizona Steampunk Society's social media page. Steampunk involves gadgets that demand creativity and a craftsmanship that can only come from thinking outside of the box. It also brings with it a higher level of thinking in regards to etiquette, morals, and equality. Ah, how kind of Brian to be so inclusive. Unfortunately, a moral compass was evidently never part of his costume. Quips aside, this attire was something Brian could be seen in nearly every weekend. 
Even outside of the curated events, it wasn't out of the ordinary for their friend group to dress up and hit up the local bar. Everyone needs a hobby, I suppose, and this was theirs. It was a form of self-expression, and according to friends, Brian was just showcasing what he thought life would be like in a dystopian wasteland, where he'd be called upon to rid the planet of the undead enemy. Brian's participation and immersion in this fantasy became a form of escapism, but his friends likely had no earthly idea of the unpleasant realities he may have actually been attempting to distract himself from. In 2012, Miller began working at the Amazon Fulfillment Warehouse, which would be the last job he would ever have on the outside of a penitentiary. While he was working for Amazon, Brian was hitting it harder than ever off the clock, role-playing as the zombie hunter in his free time. There were renaissance fairs, comic-cons, cosplay events, you name it. If he could dress up in a Ghostbuster suit and make pew-pew noises with his zombie blaster machine gun, best believe Brian was there. Perhaps the most infamous of these events he attended was the 2014 Downtown Zombie Walk in Phoenix, Arizona. (laughs) This family-friendly event brought over 20,000 undead to the streets of downtown Phoenix, giving Halloween in Salem, Massachusetts a run for its money, It was for a good cause, too. Participants were asked to bring non-perishables to the event for those in need. Brian Patrick Miller was a low-tier celebrity at the event, posing for photos with countless people who had recognized his vehicle as the zombie car from around town. What's perhaps the most ominous aspect of the documentation of this particular zombie walk were the photos Brian Patrick Miller took with the Phoenix police. Several images can be found online of Miller smiling in costume next to his blood-soaked Crown Victoria and standing in between two Phoenix police officers. The day after the event, Miller posted these images to his Arizona Zombie Hunter Facebook page on October 26, 2014, along with a caption that read, quote, Phoenix PD showing their support. One of Arizona's largest publications, the Arizona Republic, took some photographs of their own while covering the event. The newspaper put out an article entitled 55 Freaky Zombies from Downtown Phoenix Zombie Walk, which features a photograph of Brian Patrick Miller pointing his futuristic weapon directly at the journalist's camera. The caption below the image reads, A zombie hunter guards a Phoenix street during the Downtown Phoenix Zombie Walk Saturday. Brian's likeness has since been removed from the publication for obvious reasons which now features only 54 of the freakiest zombies from the 2014 downtown Phoenix zombie walk. Another bizarre turn of events was that prior to his arrest, that very same photograph was displayed at the Sky Harbor International Airport in Phoenix, promoting an upcoming exhibit called Steampunk, the Exquisite Adventure. At the time, no one had a clue that the man they were celebrating with and now using as an advertising and marketing tool was in fact an actual murderer walking amongst them. It's eerie to look back at these photographs and think that just weeks before, Phoenix homicide detectives met with Colleen Fitzpatrick at the International Symposium on Human Identification Conference. And at the time these images were taken, authorities had more than likely just handed off the yet unknown DNA profile to Fitzpatrick's crime lab and were actively waiting on the DNA results to come back from both Angela Brasso's and Melanie Burness's crime scenes. The officers standing next to Brian Patrick Miller at the zombie walk obviously had no idea they were standing next to a killer, the man responsible for the infamous cold cases that had been ongoing for nearly 22 years, and potentially others. If there's one thing that Brian Patrick Miller at least appeared to be, it was comfortable, at least in costume. Years later, though, Miller's friend, Keen Azariah, would recall an incident in 2014 that gave him pause. The same year of the zombie walk, another cosplay event took place. For that particular function, Brian Patrick Miller ditched the steampunk costume and swapped it out for a leprechaun outfit. A few days later, Keen Azariah, who oddly enough was an aspiring police sketch artist at the time, drew a funny caricature of his buddy Brian. 
It was a spoof reward poster that read, Reward. Do you know this man? Wanted for impersonating a leprechaun. Caucasian male, 5'9 to 5'11. Average build, glasses, sideburns, black and white sedan. Post tips below. The poster was meant for nothing more than a few laughs. In fact, Keene often made similar drawings of his other friends, and like he did with most of his art, he shared the fake wanted poster online. Members of the local steampunk community got a kick out of it as well, but Brian Patrick Miller was not laughing. Brian would always comment on Keene's art and was known to be supportive of his friend in that way, but for some reason, this was not a creative piece Miller could get behind. That stuck out to Keene. He thought it was strange that his friend didn't provide any feedback on the drawing, especially considering it was a rendering of Brian himself. Keene began thinking perhaps he had exaggerated some of his friend's features a bit too much, or that he had inadvertently insulted him. Of course, he could have never known that that sketch may have just reminded Brian Patrick Miller of the two or more girls he had brutally raped and murdered two decades before, or at the very least, reminded him that he was, in fact, a wanted man. This episode is proudly sponsored by Fabric by Gerber Life. All right, one question I get asked a lot about this podcast is, why do people listen? Well, why are you listening? For many, it's equal parts morbid curiosity and preparation. People naturally want to know what they can do to prevent something terrible from happening to themselves by listening to these cases. But the reality is, you can only do so much, because when that day comes, it comes. And we very likely will have little to no control over when or why that is. But what you do have control over now is whether or not you have life insurance. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes, with no health exam required. There's no risk to apply, and they have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash invisible. That's meetfabric.com slash invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Lumi. Do you want to smell better naked? Yeah, let's face it. Our underarms aren't the only place we have odor. That's why I'm excited about our partnership with Lumi. Lumi was created by an OBGYN who discovered and proved in clinical testing that the vagina is not to blame for day-to-day odor below the belt. So she developed Lumi, a uniquely formulated pH-balanced deodorant. It's aluminum-free, skin-safe, and clinically proven to control odor for up to 72 hours. You guys, the cool thing about Lumi is you can use it over your entire body. It's the first of its kind, seriously safe to use anywhere, whole body deodorant. Guys, I was a little leery to try this stuff out at first, but I got my starter pack and I actually tried out the invisible cream, lavender sage scent on my nether regions because my wife likes to claim that occasionally it smells like garlic cheese curds down there. Oh well, you are what you eat, right? Anyways, this stuff is amazing. It applies nice and cool to the skin and doesn't leave any type of oily residue. So, if your chesticles smell like music festivals or your thigh folds smell like dry toads, give Lumi a try. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code CHOIR at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code CHOIR. Only a few months later, Brian Patrick Miller would unknowingly sit down with undercover officers at a Chili's restaurant. After obtaining his DNA from his drinking mug, he was arrested roughly one week later. On January 13th, 2015, police would come knocking at Brian Patrick Miller's door at 844 East Mountain View Road in Phoenix. And when Keen Azariah heard that the zombie hunter had been arrested, he finally realized why that police sketch he drew of his friend wasn't so well received. 
It was as brutal as it was perplexing. Two young women, 22-year-old Angela Brasso and 17-year-old Melanie Burness, found dead, their bodies mutilated. But just as suddenly as those murders started, the crime stopped without an arrest. Until now. Tonight, after more than 20 years, a Phoenix man is behind bars accused of both murders. This is 42-year-old Brian Patrick Miller as he made his initial appearance in court today. When Brian Patrick Miller was taken into custody, the world finally had a face to match to the 1992 and 1993 cold case murders of 22-year-old Angela Brasso and 17-year-old Melanie Burnus. Long before Miller began pretending to hunt zombies, he was hunting real-life women and underage girls and was allowed to do so unchecked for nearly 25 years. His ex-wife Amy went to police as soon as he was in custody. She told them how he'd confessed to the murder of Brandy Myers in 1992 and the stabbing of Victoria Michelson in the year 2000. On paper, Miller had only two stabbing victims that survived, Celeste Bentley in 1989 and Melissa Ramirez in 2002. Victoria Michelson, who was just 14 at the time Miller allegedly stabbed her but got away, would have made it three survivors. However, even though his wife Amy informed police about her ex-husband's confessions, in Victoria's case, a statute of limitations had long expired, and Miller was never subsequently charged with a crime. But what about Brandy Myers, the 13-year-old girl who has never been found? Well, unfortunately, Amy's word alone wasn't enough. With no body, there's no DNA evidence linking Miller to a potential homicide. Even so, police did submit first-degree murder charges against Miller for the murder of Brandy Myers, but the district attorney's office ultimately tasked police with investigating her disappearance further, so he has yet to be formally charged in that case. Her family has yet to receive justice, and it's unclear at this point if they ever will. Sadly, to this day, she's never been found, but just two days after Brandy went missing, and while police were looking for her, another girl turned up dead. Back on May 28, 1992, the young female body was found along a canal bank in the desert in the area of 20th Street and Deer Valley Road. While out searching for Brandy Myers, the remains of another teenage girl were discovered. It was 16-year-old Shannon Amok. Her body was found in the late stages of decomposition out in the desert, north of the Central Arizona Project Canal. Shannon Amok was found by an ATV rider in the 2000 block of East Deer Valley Road some 10 miles from where Angela Brasso would be killed months later, and about 11 miles from where Melanie Burnus would be murdered the following year. It wouldn't be until 2011 when her body was actually exhumed and Shannon was officially identified. Brian Patrick Miller has never been charged with Shannon's murder either, but it's very possible that this man has killed four, five, or even six women and 37-year-old Kelly Sarston of Machias, Washington could be yet another one. Kelly disappeared on August 17, 2004. Her body was found dumped in a river near her home the following day. Brian Patrick Miller was residing in Everett, Washington at the time, just eight miles from where Kelly lived. Then in August of 2013, another woman named Adrienne Salinas was found murdered in the desert. She'd been missing for nearly two months after leaving a party in Tempe. According to Brian Patrick Miller's former friend, Keen Azariah, Miller was in Tempe the morning Adrienne disappeared. Keen claims the part of the desert where Adrienne's body was found is an area Brian Patrick Miller knew all too well. All of the previously mentioned remain unsolved cases, and it's important to clarify that Brian Patrick Miller has only been charged with the murders of Angela Brasso and Melanie Burnus. However, according to Stuart Summershoe, the retired lead detective on the Brandy Myers case, Miller is almost surely responsible for her death, as well as many others. He's more than likely a serial killer who's committed more than just the two homicides he's been formally charged with. Brian Patrick Miller's capital murder trial was set to begin in April of 2017. He pleaded not guilty, but wouldn't see his day in court for several more years. This case was delayed several times as a result of the defense filing for continuance after continuance, not to mention the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Granted, there was a vast amount of evidence for both the state and Miller's defense attorneys to consider as well. The most crucial being whether or not Miller's 2015 DNA profile, lifted from that mug at Chili's, should even be admissible in court. The defense argued that it should not, and during pretrial, they argued that the DNA sample was obtained illegally, without a warrant and without consent. The judge saw it differently, however. She stated that Miller shouldn't have expected any sense of privacy regarding DNA and, to his own fault, lost that privilege the second he sat down at a public Chili's restaurant. Customers who walk to a restaurant's exit, having left such items behind, implicitly communicate their intent to abandon them. In short, the defense's bid to withhold the crux of this case, that being the DNA evidence, was denied, and that Chili's mock, along with the DNA profile, was admitted into evidence. Miller's bench trial would finally begin some seven long years after his initial arrest, in September of 2022. On day one, both detectives Robert Wamsley and Mike Meislish testified for the prosecution. They were the first to arrive at the respective crime scenes in 1992 and 1993. Wamsley spoke about his experience when Melanie Burness's body was first discovered. Was the body still on scene when you got there? Yes, ma'am. Where was it? Uh, the bottom of the canal. The DNA lab criminalist also testified regarding the DNA sample taken from the vaginal swab, as well as a piece of the bodysuit Melanie Burness's body was discovered in. But I did cut an area that uh, was surrounding a reddish-brown stain in the middle of the crotch. The defense was not denying that Brian Patrick Miller killed both Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness. His semen was left at both crime scenes 30 years ago. That kind of DNA evidence is simply irrefutable. And so instead, they would argue an insanity defense, which consisted primarily of two angles. One, that Miller suffered from a complex disassociative disorder called disassociative amnesia due to past childhood trauma. And second, that he was on the autism spectrum. Clinical psychologist Dr. Bethany Brand evaluated Miller following his arrest. He feels like there are different TVs playing in his head. Miller never confessed to murdering anyone during his sessions with Dr. Brand. Instead, he claimed he couldn't remember the events happening at all. And the defense used this clinical analysis to support their claim that Miller was insane at the time he committed both murders. The state specifically asked you, is it your opinion that someone with dissociative amnesia could cause someone to commit a murder? Do you recall that question? Yes. What was your answer? Something like it could be um, related but not causal. There could be a part of them, a self-state, that has very violent, revengeful feelings, fantasies, and wishes, and another part not know about that. Um, and so in that case, it could contribute. But in other cases, there's plenty of dissociative amnestic patients out there that don't commit murders. Dr. Bethany Brand said that Brian Patrick Miller became frustrated when she attempted to guide him toward recalling either one of the killings. He just became very frustrated every time I kept pushing and, and pointing out things like your semen was found on these women. You know, he became incredibly frustrated with me pushing this. Um, he didn't become hostile. He didn't become irate, but he was very frustrated. I think the most important thing is he doesn't remember these murders. To not remember doing something so egregious as murders, that's incredibly dysfunctional. Miller's defense claimed that he couldn't remember killing either of the women due to abuse he'd suffered at the hands of his own mother when he was just a child. They alleged that she had threatened him with knives, telling her son that she was going to cut his penis off beginning at a very young age. In one part of our coverage of this case, we mentioned that VHS tape, a film called Shocking Asia, which was found during the search of Brian Patrick Miller's home. According to his lawyers, Brian's mother allegedly used to make him watch that film that showcased animal cruelty, sex change operations, and physical deformities when he was very young. The defendant's mother, Ellen, died in 2010. Miller's attorneys argued that he had no access to either of the killings. They said that the childhood trauma he endured caused him to dissociate completely from reality, 
which gradually developed into unhealthy and dangerous coping mechanisms. But what were those coping mechanisms, you might ask? Good question. Like most murderers with more than one victim, Miller didn't dive full-scale into raping and killing women right away. There were precursors, or other deviant acts, that led up to these fatal events over time. From a young age, Brian Patrick Miller began fantasizing about murder, which eventually became warped and intertwined with his sexual desires. Passages of Brian's sex diary were read aloud in court as well. Letters he'd written to his wife, Amy, revealing their dark escapades in the bedroom. And it reads, I told you I enjoyed it when I cut you and sucked on the wound. This is true. That was something extremely intimate. I want us to start to bring it to the edge of danger, bring it close to being the most intimate it could be. The letter his mother turned into police back in the early 90s was also presented during the trial. The document written by Miller when he was just a teenager was entitled The Plan and showed a step-by-step to-do list of over 15 itemized bullet points relating to rape, torture, and murder. Number one was kidnap. Number eight was shave her head. And number 13 read punch her a few times. Although most of it had been redacted, we know that the majority of this letter's contents are far worse than those items previously mentioned. On the stand, Miller's ex-wife expanded on the kinds of violent imagery her husband would look at, as well as providing even more disturbing details of their sex life together. At some point, very violent sexual situations. Were any of the images, images that had throats being cut? Yes. Were any of the images, images of women being killed? Yes. Earliest on, there were small knives. Later, after release, that included uh, straight pins as well. Amy testified on the stand that one of Brian's favorite things to do during sex was to stick needles through her lips, effectively sewing them together. He would put the needles through my lips, typically through... Well, his preference was the times he would put them through both lips in alternating fashion, basically sewing my mouth shut using the straight pins. Would the pins go completely through your bottom and top lips? Yes. Would you be bound when this was happening? Usually, yes. She then went on to reveal the veiled threats Miller made toward her, describing how, if he didn't care for her so much, she would more than likely already be dead. When you would bleed, what would he do? He would um, both lick the wounds and um, play in the blood. He stated at one point and eventually got to where he fairly commonly would state that if he didn't love me so much, he would like to kill me. Did that comment impact your willingness to argue with him, say no to him, that kind of thing? Very much. I would have been scared to object. Amy told the court she stayed with Miller for as long as she did out of fear. The defense, on the other hand, claimed that these sex acts were consensual. During cross-examination, Miller's attorneys asked Amy directly if her ex-husband was such a threat Why did she never mention it once during their custody battle following their divorce in 2006? So you had a chance to be heard in front of the court about who Sarah should live with, correct? Correct. And at that time, you didn't say, Brian is a dangerous man, correct? That is correct. You didn't tell them, Brian told me about stabbing a girl in Washington, and I think that he could hurt my daughter, correct? That is correct. And you never told the judge, I'm scared for my life, and so therefore I don't want my, my daughter living with him, correct? That is correct. In support of the state's argument that Brian Patrick Miller was not insane, but simply a murderous sexual sadist who got off on raping and killing women, Celeste Bentley was also called to the witness stand, one of the few women who lived to speak her truth during the trial. Celeste was Miller's first known victim after she survived a stabbing attack in the Paradise Mall parking lot back in 1989. I was yelling, I've just been stabbed, I've just been stabbed, that guy just stabbed me. Did you learn what the person's name was that stabbed you? 
Yes. What was the name? Brian Patrick Miller. Aside from the DNA, there was more physical evidence presented as well. While the 30-year-old shreds of clothing that once belonged to Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness were presented, so too were images found on Brian Patrick Miller's computer. Authorities learned that he had what he called a deviant art page on the internet. It consisted of images of cannibalism, necrophilia, and homicide crime scene photographs. In addition, there were pictures of women being tortured and decapitated in his digital history. Miller also had an Amazon wish list that was recovered as well. On it was the 80s thrasher film, The New York Ripper. The movie contained loose themes of stalking, rape, and BDSM, but perhaps most notably, the serial murder of women. In the film, the killer uses a variety of knives to murder his victims, one of whom is killed while riding her bicycle. And just like Angela Brasso was, that same woman from the film was disemboweled. In addition, the killer in the film, the New York Ripper, refers to himself as The Duck. Brian Patrick Miller also called himself The Duck and Lucky Duck online. In fact, he used these aliases in several of his social media usernames. Brian Patrick Miller's old friend and roommate, Randy McGlade, was also called to the stand to testify. The man who once shared an apartment with Miller at the time Melanie Burness was murdered back in 1993. The prosecution asked Randy about the knives Miller owned at the time, and Randy testified that Brian Patrick Miller would carry a large hunting knife with him on all of his evening bike rides. Randy was also asked about a large kitchen knife that had mysteriously vanished from their apartment during one afternoon. Do you recall at that time seeing him in possession of any knives? Occasionally, yes. Did it ever go missing? Yes. Did you ever find knives? Yes. Mace? Yes. Articles of women's clothing? Yes. Randy also addressed the bodysuit specifically, the one that Melanie Burness was found wearing when her body was recovered from the canal. On the stand, he told the court that he saw the bodysuit in their apartment, among several of Brian Patrick Miller's belongings back in August of 1993, the very month before Melanie Burness was murdered. It was a turquoise bodysuit. Why does it look familiar to you? I had seen it earlier amongst his possessions. Randy described to the court that he saw that exact same women's bodysuit in the news a year after Melanie's murder in 1994. While on the stand, he also recalled the time he questioned Brian Patrick Miller about where he was the evening she was killed. I was kind of more like joking, saying, you, weren't you out there that night? And that night that happened, and, and his response was that he was already riding on the east side of town that night. His bike. Yes. Randy told the court that the same night he asked Miller this question, he mysteriously found Brian's hunting knife in his car. During cross-examination, the defense team asked Randy McGlade if he'd ever witnessed Miller act violently or aggressively. To this, he responded, no. Randy went on to say that Miller once told him that he was afraid of knives, despite carrying one himself during his bike rides. He claimed that he didn't like them because his mother threatened him with them when he was a child. Randy also said Brian began exhibiting hoarder-like tendencies toward the end of their time living together. The home movie was also shown in court featuring Brian Patrick Miller, his ex-wife Amy, and Randy McGlade. It was taken in the late 1990s when McGlade visited the couple after they'd moved to Washington. All three are seen on a ferry during a whale-watching trip. Randy testified that when he asked Miller about the trip sometime later, he had no recollection of the event ever taking place. According to Randy, even after he showed Miller the video recording later on, Brian Patrick Miller couldn't remember going on the trip. Before getting off the stand, Randy McGlade told the court that he still considers Brian Patrick Miller a great friend. Incredibly, the trial lasted nearly seven long months. Was Brian Patrick Miller insane at the time the crimes were committed? 
Or was he simply a calculated murderer driven by a twisted sexual perversion? To spare his life or not, this was the question that went back and forth in the courtroom for more than half a year. Ultimately, Judge Suzanne Cohen would be the one to make that determination on her own. But before arriving at that decision, victim impact statements from Angela Brasso's mother and Melanie Burness's sister were heard by the court. The defendant stole her future, her innocence, her life. For 30 years now, we've had to live without Melanie because the defendant murdered her. Finally, in April of 2023, Judge Cohen would return her verdict. The court, to find her a fact in the above entitled action, upon my oath, finds the defendant as to count for kidnapping victim Melanie Burness guilty. Verdict count five, attempted sexual assault. The court, the finder of fact, in the above entitled action, upon my oath, finds the defendant as to count five, attempted sexual assault, victim Angela Brasso, guilty. Ultimately, Brian Patrick Miller was found guilty on all charges, including the first-degree murders of Angela Brasso and Melanie Burnus. Ahead of his sentencing, Miller spoke in court aloud for the very first time. Good afternoon. I am not looking for sympathy today. This time is for the family and the friends of the victims. I cannot imagine what pain they have endured for all these years. I know this has been a long and painful process for everyone. I wish I could provide answers to the questions you have. I know I am different. I didn't understand completely why. I thought I had to do with what my mother did to me. I accept the court's decision. I'm hoping this trial and my convictions have provided some measure of relief for the families. I want to do whatever I can to help my daughter. I was not a perfect father, but I tried my best. I am sorry for the damage this experience has caused her. I miss her. While Brian Patrick Miller was found guilty, it was still undecided whether or not he would receive the death penalty. The prosecution was sure to reinforce their belief that Brian Patrick Miller did, in fact, deserve to die. Killing them aroused, planning to kill them, aroused him. And he stole the memories that they would have had. The plan was discovered because his mother turned it into the police. I didn't hear him say he was remorseful for killing Melanie and Angela. I didn't hear those words. Angela and Melanie didn't get to choose when they died. Uh, They didn't get to choose the day, the hour, the moment. This defendant deserves to know the day, the hour. At his sentencing in June of 2023, the judge ultimately agreed, and Brian Patrick Miller was sentenced to death. Be it not surprising... The ruling was unique in some sense. Because Angela Brasso was murdered back in 1992, the judge would allow Miller to choose between death by lethal gas or lethal injection. This was the law at the time Angela was killed 31 long years before, and Brian Patrick Miller will inevitably have to make that decision for himself before his eventual execution date. It's been more than three decades and everybody involved is somewhat relieved that this is over and justice has been served. Brian Patrick Miller received a death sentence for each of his victims. It took over 30 years for Angela Brasso and Melanie Burness to finally receive justice. Unfortunately, there's potentially even more victims of Brian Patrick Miller's out there and even more families who may never receive that closure. While 50-year-old Brian Patrick Miller will never be free to hurt anyone ever again, it's hard to wonder just how many people this man may have actually killed. There's a lot of things we may never know as it pertains to this case, including why Brian Patrick Miller carved the letters WSC into Melanie Burness's chest. The one thing Miller's former friend Eric Braverman does know is that he is a very sick and deranged individual. Damage, previous damage. Something happened at birth, something happened genetically, things done to him. There was something with women, you know, you didn't see him using the car 
to go, hey ladies, take a picture of me. He's doing that with the police. So there's something with the, with the ladies he didn't like or not comfortable with. As for Brandy Myers, Shannon Amak, Kelly Sarston, Adrienne Salinas, and all of the other potential victims whose killer have not yet been identified, we can only hope for the family's sake that they one day will. And if Brian Patrick Miller is indeed the individual responsible for all of these unsolved homicides, and if he has a single ounce of humanity left in his body, hopefully one day he'll think of his own daughter and come forward with the truth. 